Support for Access Utah comes from Crum Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2, offering a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Support is also provided by USU's Anthropology Museum in Old Main. It's free Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, Saturdays 10 to 4. Tomorrow, learn about Japanese art and culture, both ancient and modern, with Bunkanohi. Information is at anthromuseum.usu.edu. Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Organizations from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife to private groups like the Wild Utah Project are catching up to the army of oil and gas drilling sites across the nation. The oil and gas companies have had minimal oversight from federal and state agencies until recently, and the impact of the drilling surge on ecosystems is now getting more attention. The theme of this week's Restoring the West annual conference at Utah State University was Balancing Energy Development and Biodiversity. Species of concern addressed at the meeting included elk, pronghorn, greater sagegrass, pygmy rabbits, the soil crust lichen, and various plants and shrubs. The plethora of research presented is testament to an ethic of maintaining an equilibrium in our environment, where nature and extraction of resources coincide with minimal damage to wildlife. How it plays out remains in question. Today on the program, we profile one group's effort to understand and preserve pronghorn populations that winter on the two biggest gas fields in the nation, located in Wyoming. Joining us to talk about the project is John Beckman, conservation ecologist for the Wildlife Conservation Society. Growing up, I knew I couldn't do an office job inside, so I had to uh, find something that uh, was outside, and um, I loved to be outside camping and hunting and fishing, and so I was drawn to the field of wildlife biology. What are your thoughts on this on this conference, and are there others like it that you've attended? Yeah, I've attended several scientific conferences and actually quite a few scientific conferences over the years. And because uh, natural resource extraction is becoming such a large issue in the West, in particular habitat fragmentation and what we call landscape permeability issues for species of migrating wildlife, um, it's becoming more and more of a concern uh, from the wildlife community of uh, what are the impacts of all this natural resource extraction. And what I tend to focus on uh, in my research is the impacts for natural gas field development. Animal migration is a phenomenon that represents collective travel and suggests premeditation and instinct. A biologist named Hugh Dingle, striving to understand the essence, has identified five characteristics that apply in varying degrees and combinations to all migrations. They are prolonged movements that carry animals outside familiar habitats. They tend to be linear, not zigzaggy. They involve special behaviors of preparation, such as overfeeding and arrival. They demand special allocations of energy. And one more, migrating animals maintain a fervid attentiveness to the greater mission, which keeps them undistracted by temptations and undeterred by challenges that would turn other animals aside. Beckman says long-distance migration of the pronghorn and other animals is declining. Long-distance migration, and so animals, particularly ungulates in particular, uh, moving from summer range to winter range is a 
it occurs at very large scales on the landscape. And so some of the pronghorn uh, populations we're working on in western Wyoming will migrate over 120 miles in one direction between summer and winter range. And for a lot of species globally, because of uh, human impacts on the landscape, whether they be roads or habitat conversion or urban encroachment into uh, areas that have historically contained these long-distance migration populations were severing the ability of animals to move across the landscape. And because of that, we're losing long-distance migration as an ecological phenomena globally. Uh, even in a place like the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, which is fairly highly protected, we've lost 75% of the known pronghorn migrations over the last couple decades. So that gives you an idea of what the rate of loss for something like uh, long-distance migration is uh, globally. And what does that mean for the population and for the ecosystem? Well, what it means is for a species like pronghorn that in western Wyoming where you have really severe winters and uh, large amounts of snow, because they're relatively small-bodied and the way that their their legs are, they can't handle deep snow as some of the larger-bodied animals. And so if they're not able to gain access to regions that have lower snow depth during the winter, then they can't access enough forage, and so they essentially starve to death and die during the winter. And so for long-term population persistence, it's critical that they can move between summer and winter range. This work is in western Wyoming. The biggest natural gas fields, you said, in the nation? Yes, two of the largest natural gas fields actually in all of North America, but the two they are the two largest in uh, the United States. And it's the northern one is known as the Pinedale Anticline Project Area. We shorten it down to PAPA, and the southern one is the Jonah Fields. And there's an estimated 30 to 50 trillion cubic feet of natural gas in those gas fields. And what's really phenomenal about this is that the gas a lot, a lot of times is you know, 12 to 13,000 feet under the ground. And so it's quite an intensive operation and an engineering marvel, actually, that they can, you know, attain those gas resources. And so the equipment that's required to do it, these are the, the, the derricks are the size of these offshore oil derricks that you would see in places like the Gulf of Alaska or the Gulf of Mexico. So it's pretty, uh, you know, substantial uh, infrastructure that's going on on the landscape. Are they doing horizontal drilling there or directional drilling? They are. When, when they first uh, began developing the gas fields in the uh, Upper Green River Basin, western Wyoming, in the Papa and the Jonah fields, it was a one well to one pad ratio. And what they've done is because of discussions about reducing that surface disturbance, the, the actual pads that the gas wells go on have gotten a little bit larger, but they're drilling up to 64, in some cases 80 wells off of a single pad because of directional drilling. And so that just means they, they drill down into the ground and then they angle over um, to the gas pocket underground, and so it reduces the overall uh, disturbance on the surface. Can you describe what it looks like? Because I've seen a lot of the, the fracking sites in, back east and then also in the Uinta Basin. The, the, the pad... the, the arrangement and the roads kind of looks like a spider web on the landscape and so you have a lot of roads that essentially dead end at every well pad and so you get this spatial array on the landscape and then the oil derricks themselves and the natural gas derricks um, look just like you would see offshore you know these uh, structures go several hundred feet in the air and you have a lot of uh, vehicles associated with them um, and a lot of other infrastructure including uh, 
uh, ponds that are built on these pads. Is this mostly federal land then that these sites are, are on? Yes. Uh, for a case like western Wyoming, um, almost all of the wells uh, to date have gone mostly on BLM lands, uh, but there's more and more natural gas uh, development occurring on U.S. Forest Service lands. But the vast majority of these are occurring on U.S. Uh, federal lands, uh, but there is a significant component of these that is occurring on private lands as well. And do you know what companies are the most prolific in that area? Oh, some of the largest holders in that area. It varies uh, about if there's a a petroleum company that you can think of, they're probably out there. And so it's it's hard to list all of them in the number of holdings. Uh, it depends on the gas field. Um, so you'll see uh, companies like Shell or Questar out there. Um, and about any company you can think of uh, has some leasings out there. And uh, if not in the Papa and the Jonah, definitely in uh, the Western U.S. The Pronghorn Study is a collaborative effort that bridges multiple organizations with differing objectives, some for profit and some for conservation. Yet they are all working together to sustain a balanced, healthy ecosystem, despite the fact it has taken so long for the environmental studies to launch and take effect. So our study began by us uh, collaborating with some of the uh, petroleum companies, but also uh, various other funding sources and also partnering with the uh, game and fish departments and some of the federal agencies. And during our study is when the final EIS was signed. And so our work was actually done before the final environmental impact statement. In a place like the uh, Pinedale Anticline Project Area in the Jonah Field, uh, wells started going in as early as the late 1990s, and the final EIS was signed in 2008. And the place we work is actually part of the southern greater Yellowstone ecosystem in the upper Green River Basin of Wyoming. But there's other groups that are studying a, a lot of different species, and so there's work going on on mule deer, uh, work on sage grouse, and then our work on pronghorn. And, and those are the uh, species that tend to be the focus when the development is occurring on uh, sagebrush habitat. Why pronghorn? Because they're native to that area? No, we decided to focus on pronghorn for a, a couple of reasons. One, they're an endemic species that's found only in North America. Um, they do do long-distance migration, and so we're very interested in p protecting and understanding long-distance migration as an ecological phenomena. And pronghorn also... Um, not a lot is understood about how they respond to these impacts. And so we thought this was an opportunity for a species where there was no data and little understanding to begin to develop uh, data sets and an understanding of how they would respond to a natural gas field development. And the other uh, interest for us is that if you look at pronghorn, they've been severely reduced from their historic distribution and to the point where there's an estimated about 750 to 800,000 pronghorn in North America, and Wyoming contains over half of those. Uh, so Wyoming is definitely the stronghold for uh, pronghorn in North America. What year did you start this study? We began the behavioral components of this study in 2002 and 2003, um, and then we've been placing GPS collars on uh, as an organization we had a study with the National Park Service uh, early on to define the uh, migration corridors in 2003, 
but our focus on the winter range and the gas field component, uh, we began collaring animals in 2005. And then can you talk a little bit about the field work and what it's like to, to do that, and what are the challenges? Uh, the field work is actually uh, pretty intensive. It's uh, harsh environmental conditions in western Wyoming. This is all winter field work, and so a lot of times we're working uh, with the animals in minus 30 degree uh, temperatures. Uh, so we're capturing them. A lot of times uh, we're uh, out there collecting behavioral data, uh, following these uh, collared animals in pretty hard conditions with a lot of snow on the ground. Uh, but it's uh, exciting and it's very rewarding work. And what's the population size? That you're studying? Uh, the, the population in the Upper Green River Basin in western Wyoming, uh, we've, when we've done our aerial transects out of airplanes, we count up to about 3,000 uh, animals, and that's over a, a, an area that's uh, roughly 4,000 square kilometers. Okay, and then you listed some of the things that you are studying, the, the health effects, and you're looking at disease and habitat loss, and can you list some of those and what your findings have been so far? Yeah, so we've looked at a variety of factors, and so we've been trying to look at the impacts of gas field development on not only uh, population, what we call demographics, and those are things like survival, and body mass condition is an indicator of uh, health of the population, but we're also screening individuals for eight different diseases that they may be susceptible to. We're also uh, looking at changes in behavior and how they are responding to uh, infrastructure and the gas fields over the course of the study. And so it's been a comparative study. We've been looking at pronghorn that winter inside the gas fields and comparing all of those parameters to pronghorn that are overwintering outside the gas field boundaries. Wintering in the gas fields, was that a uh, preferred habitat or wintering range for them? Well, when you look at uh, the Upper Green River Basin um, for pronghorn, looking at Wyoming Game and Fish Department's uh, crucial winter range designations, uh, the two gas fields in that region, the Papa and the Jonah, overlap uh, a significant portion of that crucial wintering areas that the state has defined for you know several decades, almost 50 years uh, prior to the gas field development, and so it. it because pronghorn don't deal with uh, deep snow, they tend to concentrate during the winter on these higher plateaus that are windswept where the snow is uh, kept at a lower uh, level. And so that's one of the big factors driving this as crucial winter habitat. And so the gas happens to be underneath those areas. And so the anticline, which is the an uplifting formation under the ground that trap these pockets of natural gas happens to fall underneath uh, the the plateaus and the mesa. It's actually called the mesa just outside the town of Pinedale, Wyoming, which happens to be where the crucial winter range for pronghorn is. And then what fascinates you about the pronghorn, their behavior or their biology, and uh, maybe something that you've even learned in the course of your research, that what's interesting about them? Pronghorn just, they're fascinating animals. Uh, one, they're the second fastest uh, land mammal in the world. You know, they can attain speeds of 65 to 70 miles per hour, and so they're just incredibly fast, but they're also just incredibly beautiful. And the thing about them is you look at them, and they have these kind of long, spindly legs, and they look kind of fragile as species, but they're really hardy uh, individuals to be able to make it through a Wyoming winter. It's pretty uh, uh, impressive. What's your outlook on the future of the population there, and especially in light of all the energy development, and do you think they're able to coexist in in healthy population sizes? 
Yeah, you know, I think uh, I'm an optimist, and so I think that there's definitely an opportunity for coexistence of pronghorn in a region like the Upper Green in the southern greater Yellowstone uh, system. And and I think it's just uh, us deciding that we want to uh, harvest natural gas resources in a way that maintains these populations on the landscape. And so, you know, as long as we use science and let the data inform the management decision process, I think it can be done. The last thing that I would add is that when you have something like natural gas field development and extraction that could last for 25 to 50 years, I think it's really important to maintain the monitoring over that entire lifespan of a gas field in the development so you can continually assess what the impacts are and you can make appropriate adjustments and the best management practices depending on the species that you're interested in, to maintain those over the long haul. It's not just the oil and gas sites that can threaten wildlife behavior. Roads get in the way, too, of migration. Beckman is impressed with Wyoming's efforts to mitigate the problem, a potential model for other states across the nation. We are excited and we congratulate the Wyoming Department of Transportation for putting uh, the money and the investment and having the vision to put in these crossing structures over Highway 191 in response to the migration data for both pronghorn and mule deer in the southern greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And Wyoming Department of Transportation really stepped to the plate, and they're becoming a, a, a significant leader in that field of reducing uh, uh, wildlife vehicle collisions. And so it's a win-win situation because the wildlife benefit and it increases landscape permeability so animals can successfully migrate, but it also increases uh, the traveling public safety. And so both benefit on that. And uh, the mitigation of uh, wildlife and vehicle collisions is increasing um, in popularity and as a movement in the field of conservation. And we're starting to see these types of projects in places like Wyoming. Also, Nevada has several projects on US 93 in northeast Nevada uh, for mule deer and pronghorn. And then we're seeing them in places in, like Colorado. And so these types of uh, efforts are really starting to uh, become more and more popular. But the leaders in the field of uh, reducing wildlife vehicle collisions in North America have been the Canadians, particularly in and around uh, Banff National Park, for example. And how so? They've been putting in crossing structures for almost 20 years, well, at least 15 years, and they've been collecting data. They've been putting in these crossing structures for species like mule deer and elk, but also grizzly bears, uh, black bears, and uh, folks like Tony Clevenger have been collecting data up there on these crossing structures for a long time. And they've shown, for example, that these overpass structures in Banff National Park have reduced uh, vehicle collisions with mule deer by 98%. So they're highly successful. They're an effective tool uh, to use. And so if the data are utilized to place these structures and build them correctly, they're highly effective tools. So you're off now. When you leave this conference, then you're going to? To the field. To the right, so so one of the things is that uh, this conference fell right in the middle of the migration. We have uh, animals that are currently migrating, so we are actually out there, and the team is collecting data, and we'll probably be collecting data on uh, migratory pronghorn for the next week before they are all down on the winter range. Sherry Quinn for Access Utah. Stay tuned for science questions and a profile of black holes with numerical relativist Pablo Laguna. Unbended knee is no way to be free. Lift 
up an empty cup I silently All my destinations will accept the one that's me So I can breathe Circles they grow and they swallow people whole Half their lives they say goodnight to wives they'll never know Got a mind full of questions and a teacher in my soul So it goes Don't come closer Or I'll have to go Holding me like gravity Are places that pull If ever there was someone To keep me at home It would be you Everyone I come across In cages they Commentator Thad Box. When I hear someone say it's time to start digging in the dirt, I am immediately transported back to a soil genesis course. My professor pushed aside tall grasses and thrust his shovel into the ground. He handed each of us a handful and said, This is soil. It is a mixture of living organisms, organic matter, and geological materials. If you want to pass this course, you will never call it dirt. Over a century ago, Russian scientists called soil the excited skin of the subaerial part of the Earth's crust. That skin is a dynamic layer, varying in depth from a few inches to many feet. In that skin, solar energy, water, plants, and animals change the inorganic base into soil. That skin produces food, fiber, and renewable fuel used by humans. By the 1930s, scientists were connecting studies of soil, plants, and animals to better manage land and produce food. In the years leading up to the Dust Bowl, humans fouled their nest by destroying more of the Earth's skin than could be created through normal soil-forming processes. Programs in soil conservation and reclamation developed with the thought that if humans destroyed the environment, humans could rebuild it. Land was owned by humans, who largely stood apart from the land, using it and abusing it. Aldo Leopold said land is a fountain of energy flowing through a circuit of soils, plants, and animals. He taught that our ethics must reflect individual responsibility for the health of that land. Most Americans have never had responsibility for keeping the earth's skin healthy. Glossy advertisements tell us to buy brand-name soil in a bag and feed our plants stuff sold in cans. Most people don't know soil from dirt. But the future of humankind depends on how we treat the Earth's thin skin that we call soil. This is Thad Box. Support for Science Questions comes from USU's College of Science, advancing the educational experience of future students with advanced research in the lab, field, and outer space. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information is at usu.edu science. Welcome to Science Questions. This is Sherry Quinn. 
Did you know some black holes outshine entire galaxies and appear so luminous they may be visible from billions of light years away? Today we are exploring black holes with numerical relativist and astrophysicist Pablo Laguna. Gravitational waves from black holes are flowing across the Earth, bombarding everything. When they get here, they are weak and subtle. They are usually described as ripples in space-time, just like a boat sailing through the ocean produces waves in the water. Moving masses like stars or black holes produce gravitational waves in the fabric of space-time. Dr. Pablo Laguna is professor of physics at the Georgia Institute of Technology. I'm also the director of the Center for Relativistic Astrophysics. Dr. Laguna joined us on the program today to talk about black holes and numerical relativity. He is the featured speaker for tonight's Science Unwrapped lecture series at USU. My original intention was to be a mathematician, and then I guess as you start taking classes and other electives, my interest switched to physics, and when I graduated from Texas, it became more clear that uh, what I wanted to do is astrophysics, but astrophysics related to those um, systems in which, uh, in order to understand the phenomena taking place, you needed to solve Einstein's equations of general relativity. So I'm an astrophysicist that deals more with systems in which uh, gravity has to be described by Einstein's theory of general relativity. And you use a numerical relativity, is that correct? That is correct. It just happens that um, the complexity in those systems is such that uh, finding pencil and paper solutions is very, very difficult. I mean, most of them, they have it already discovered. So these days, with uh, powerful supercomputers, we're able to solve the equations and be able to make predictions or to interpret the data uh, that we collect. And yes, so the idea is to solve Einstein's equations numerically, and that's how this new field called numerical relativity has emerged. And can you describe a supercomputer? Basically, is um, taking advantage at, uh that working together, we can do things faster. In this case, by working together, we're talking about if we put the processors that you have in your laptop, for instance, and uh, many of them connected in such a way that there is fast communication, then each processor can be assigned part of the calculation, and the result is that we can do it much faster. Okay? And uh, that is the basic idea behind these uh, supercomputers. It's a collection of many, many, many processors that you have in normal laptops or desktops that you have at home and uh, with uh, fast connectivity. And then we programmers, what we do is we distribute the work in such a way that all of them hopefully are doing uh, uh, the work together that uh, that expedites the result. And can you give an example of some of the questions that you're trying to answer with these computers, and how much faster is it than if you were to do a pencil and paper? That's right. So the main system that uh, my students and postdocs and I are uh, being currently involved is what happens when two black holes collide. So many of the stars in the skies that, that we observe are binary stars. At the end of the lives, the stars in many instances become black holes, so there is a good chance that in nature 
you have two black holes orbiting each other. They get closer and closer because they lose energy by gravitational waves that are radiated. And uh, the main question is, what happens, what kind of uh, observables or signals will get when those black holes merge? And uh, the detectors that are currently collecting data, although uh, they're not sensitive enough yet to be able to detect these signals, but the detectors, the data is very noisy, and we had to help the people who analyze the data with giving them an idea of what to expect. What will be the form of the waves that they will be detecting? And that is what these simulations, the main aim of these simulations, to be able to provide a guidance of uh, what to expect from these collisions. No one has ever seen a black hole. Yet despite this lack of evidence, most scientists believe that a massive star at the end of its life can implode to form an object so dense that not even light can escape. The idea of black holes dates back to the First World War, when German astronomer Karl Schwarzschild solved the equations of Einstein's theory of gravity. He showed that space-time around any massive star would be curved. Squeeze a large enough star into a tiny enough space, and its density would become infinite, and the curvature of space-time would spiral out of control. The gravity near one of these objects would be so strong that nothing, not even photons, could escape its grasp. Actually, the interesting thing is that for the very massive black holes, and what do I call massive? A black hole that has a mass million times the mass of our sun. Okay? For those black holes, there is very strong evidence, actually, that most, if not all, the galaxies have a supermassive black hole at their core. For instance, the one in uh, in our own galaxy, the Milky Way, uh, observations of how stars orbit in the core of our galaxy show that there is a black hole there. We don't see it, but we know its indirect effect by how these stars orbit. And we know that the black hole there is about a few million times the mass of the sun. So... I think it will be very, very difficult to explain such phenomena by other means other than uh, a black hole. And uh, there are many other examples. So I think these days uh, we have moved from black holes being the subject of science fiction, of movies, to one in which there is s such overwhelming observational data that they're there. They're part of the cosmos. And what are their size ranges? There's the really massive the supermassive black holes, and then what would be the, the smallest? There are, uh, we typically, I mean, there is not a strict boundaries, but we like to classify it in three main uh, classes. One of them are the supermassive black holes of millions or billions times the, sun, the mass of the sun. There is an intermediate mass, which is about 1,000, 10,000 times the mass of the sun. And then there is a one that are few solar masses. And... Uh, so those are the, the three ranges of, of that. And they have different ways or different channels of uh, formation of birth. And can you describe some of those? For the ones that are just few solar masses, uh, 
the typical or the what we know leads to those black holes is very massive stars that at the end of their lives they explode and the remnant that is behind, left behind in uh, some instances are black holes. For the supermassive black hole, it's a little bit tricky. The, we, we have ideas, but we don't have as clear understanding of how these very massive objects form. There had to be some seed present at some point very early in the life of the universe. And then they grow by either merging with other black holes or by eating the gas and dust and material that is in the vicinity of these objects. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then how does dark energy affect black holes and the event horizon? So the association of dark energy with black holes, I think, is, is not yet directly established, in my opinion. We know the presence of, of dark energy. We don't know what it is. I think uh, uh, there is a stronger connection between dark matter and black holes, but dark energy, in my opinion, is not uh, yet established. Now, the event horizon is part of what we use to characterize a black hole, is this boundary that separates the region of space in which you cannot escape anymore from those that we have access and we can move around by speeds that are not uh, larger than the speed of light. It's not a solid surface. It's, I mean, if you were falling into a black hole, you will not see uh, crossing a wall or anything like that. It's just uh, a sphere or a shell that tells you that once that you cross that one, you will not be able to escape uh, the black hole. It is believed that two colliding black holes emit gravitational waves. Detecting gravitational waves and their origins is a major area of study in astrophysics. In order to detect them, scientists must first model what the incoming waveform might look like. Since there are so many sources at a given time, computer models of gravitational waves are necessary, so they know what to look for in a huge mass of data. Since the waves are so weak when they reach us, instruments sensitive enough to detect such slight variations in space-time were developed. There are currently several ground-based detectors in operation or under construction, including Virgo from Italy and France, Tama from Japan, LIGO in the U.S., and the NASA space-based observatory, LISA. The aspects that is fascinating about uh, gravitational waves is that uh, they interact very weakly with matter or with the environment that we, we have. So even though we are in this room, I mean, a gravitational wave will just go through basically um, without suffering any changes. But that's an advantage and a disadvantage. The advantage is that if they are not affected by the intervening matter, that means that if we detect them, we will see the properties that we unveil in the gravitational waves are the properties of the source that produce that gravitational wave. So we will have a direct channel of information about the sources of gravitational radiation. On the other hand, since they are very difficult to catch, yeah, that means that the experiments are extremely challenging. LIGO, this interferometer, um, we have two in the United States, one in Washington State, the other one in Louisiana. Currently, they are going through an upgrade, and they are uh, 
for a theorist like me, it's, it's amazing that they are able to get the sensitivity needed to catch the wave. And uh, But again, the, our job as a theorist that do numerical relativity is to provide a, a guidance by anticipating the shape of those waves. And so there are teams of theorists in numerical relativity producing these waveforms, this catalog, so to speak, of waveforms that working together with people who do data analysis, we will be able to dig the signal out of the noisy data. And not only that will be detecting the wave, but also saying, okay, this wave came from the merger of a black hole with a neutron star, two black holes with these characteristics and so on. So it will open a new type of astronomy that is based on gravitational waves as opposed to light. And how far along are we right now? Right now, the LIGO interferometer is going through an upgrade that, uh, if I remember correctly, should be completed by 2014 or so. It needs to go through a, a time of uh, checking that everything is working, and hopefully by 2016 or 17, we'll have the first confirmed detection. And again, those are estimates that I'm not involved directly in the LIGO uh, collaboration. I'm a theorist that interacts with that collaboration. But I mean, roughly, I will say that by 2016 or 17, we can have the first detection and then have uh, uh, routine observations of these events and other events. Uh, black holes, black hole merges are not the only source of gravitational waves. It's one of the most dominant sources, but it's not the only one. Lisa, how is that different from LIGO? So the gravitational waves, depending on their wavelength, depending on their frequency, is the size of the interferometer that you need to detect them. For interferometers that are being built or have been built on Earth, like LIGO, the size of those instruments, which is about four uh, kilometers about uh, in, in, in size, okay, uh, the type of waves that those interferometers can detect are for collisions of black holes that are few solar masses. For the supermassive black hole mergers, you will have to have a much larger interferometer. That, will ha that means that you need to go to space to have an instrument that large. And the proposed LISA interferometer was aimed to do that. Unfortunately, because of you know, budgetary constraints and uh, the, the difficulties that we currently face, NASA is no longer directly involved in that one. There are plans to revive that involvement, but as it is, LISA has been um, uh, postponed a few years to the time in which we believe will be, we hope, will be flying. And then uh, I wanted to go back to the LIGO project, and what form does the data come in? I mean, is it uh, pieces of data that are read by a computer? Is there a sound, noise? Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned it. It's, it's more like gravitational waves. The, the analogy is more with sound waves. So what we'll be doing is we're going to be listening to the collisions of black holes or the spinning of a neutron star or other. So it's more like sounds. But the problem is that in top of that sound, there will be noise due to for instance, the suspension wires in the mirrors and the interferometer or 
that uh, the movement on the earth so it's a it's a, do- a noise dominated data so when i say that we that with those simulations need to provide we need to provide precisely how the sound looks like what's how the sound sounds and uh, and uh, now this the particular form of the data is basically at the end of the day what we're looking is for what is called a time series that is a function of time on how this wave changes. That is the ultimate uh, shape of, of the, the ultimate, once the, the data has been completely analyzed and so forth. And so these waves then, they reach the Earth? And That's so, right. And so the Earth, as we speak, waves are reaching the Earth. There are, there are gravitational waves going through this studio. And uh, what uh, these interferometers do is that the, the waves are what are called ripples, ripples in space-time. So as a consequence, those ripples are changing the shape of this table, the shape of this mic, the shape of... But it's the, the, the changes are so minute that one needs these very sophisticated instruments to detect them. Okay? And uh, the changes are larger, the larger the object that the gravitational waves goes through is. So that's why... What we want is to be able to have enough resources to build an instrument that is large enough that the changes in the instrument are measurable. My dream, and which is shared by many of my colleagues, is that uh, we move from science that is mostly theoretical to science that is observationally driven. That is, the data that we collect is the one that is pushing us what to do next, what to expect, what questions to ask, and uh, understanding the universe and the cosmos. So that's my dream, and that happened, for instance, in cosmology. In cosmology, when I was a student in Texas, a a graduate student, it was uh, mostly theorists speculating how the universe uh, looks like or how to behave and uh, now it's fair to say that uh, most of cosmology is driven by observations by uh, uh, data collected by satellites and trying to interpret things like dark energy so I hope uh, in the very near future gravitational wave astronomy is the same uh, as cosmology in that sense that is data who drive us to do the science that we love. And what have been the major strides in the field within the past 10 years or even the past few years? We struggle many years to be able to solve Einstein's equations. When we went and wrote programs that were aimed at finding solutions of the Einstein equations, it was very frustrating. We could not get too far. And it happens about um, around 2005 that a couple of groups, one at at the University of Texas at Brownsville and another one in uh, NASA Goddard, that found a prescription, found a a recipe, so to speak, of how to do it. And it was fantastic. Since then, all our programs or codes that we call have been able to, you know, routinely find solutions, in this case, solutions to the merger of two black holes. 
That work happened around 2005, the year before Franz Pretorius was able to basically single-handed come up with uh, another recipe to be able to solve that. So it just happened, in my opinion, that uh, the right conditions, both in the talent of people, in the information, to be able to do that, that completely revolutionized uh, our field of, of numerical relativity. So that, in my opinion, is uh, what uh, now, why it's possible to for us to work closely with uh, uh, observers or people doing data analysis and to be able to make progress. John Wheeler was an American theoretical physicist, well known for reviving interest in general relativity in the U.S. after World War II. He tried to achieve Einstein's vision of a unified field theory. For most of his career, Wheeler was professor at Princeton University and was an influential mentor to a generation of notable physicists, including Pablo Laguna. When I was a graduate student, I was lucky to be there when uh, John Wheeler was um, a professor. He had retired from Princeton and moved to Texas. And uh, I think his uh, particular way of approaching science was amazing and in the sense of be able to, with just simple terms, with simple way of looking at very complicated phenomena to be able to make progress. Of course, you had to also calculate things, but I mean, to begin with, to not not just calculate because of calculating. I have had other mentors through my career. Some of them have had influence regarding about how to, if you want to put it this way, how to survive in, in, in the academic environment by survive, you know, what what to do to be able to be successful and so on. And uh, I can name, uh, you know, Abai Ashtaker. He's doing quantum gravity. He's a professor in, in Penn State. Uh, my PhD supervisor, Richard Masner, he's a numerical relativist. And uh, so that's just to name a few. What fascinates you the most about the universe? It amazes me that we are able to, given the the size of the cosmos that we're able to prove, okay? given the, the, the ability that we have of collecting or pointing in certain direction and obtaining information about the universe and that, how very often we see surprises. It's uh, this idea that we know that the more we look, the more surprises, the more we're able to see phenomena that requires or that is challenging to interpret. I think that is what drives me in, in this uh, endeavor. We know that there is going to be something very exciting, that we will uh, never run out of things that will amaze us. And uh, in particular, I like those uh, situations in which you require this beautiful theory of Einstein's theory of general relativity to gain insight about what's taking place. Now, I must say that uh, there is still room for other theories. I mean, one of the things that LIGO, one of the things that we hope that we can do with this instrument is, uh, if you wanted to put it in simple terms, is to prove that Einstein was right. That is to say that the only theory that will be able to explain what we observe is Einstein's theory. I mean, I, I'm i a little biased in that regard. I think Einstein was But we should be open 
to explore other avenues and to be able to see maybe maybe there are other theories that uh, do a better job on that. And uh, actually, we are seriously considered. I mean, like we, our community, seriously considered exploring other directions. But so far, we don't have any reason to believe that uh, that Einstein was wrong. So I will divide my presentation in three sections. The first one, I will talk about black holes, things similar to the ones that we have just discussed about escape velocity. Then I will go and um, talk a little bit about the evidence that we have for black holes, that is uh, observational evidence with conventional telescopes. And uh, the last part about uh, the specific work that I do. But all of that in the context of uh, answering your question of what do we do every day to make progress on that? What are the frustrations? What is the the tools that we need. What kind of uh, students or postdocs get involved in, in this work? How is it um, dealing with uh, uh, large collaboration? So I, I will try to give also, if you want to say, the, the human side of starting black holes. Dr. Pablo Laguna will be presenting the Science Unwrapped talk tonight at 7 in the Eccles Science Learning Center at the Utah State University campus. For more information, call 435-797-3527. Thank you for listening. Science Questions is produced by Sherry Quinn, Susie Montgomery, and Elaine Taylor. Fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Really fascinating. You must never get bored. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, actually... <laughs> I get bored now that uh, my administrator is asking to spend time more in, in, in committees or writing memos than uh, working with my postdocs and students. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about the secret Japanese air attacks on the United States mainland during World War II. First this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. The Japanese bombing of Hawaii's Pearl Harbor brought the United States into World War II in 1941. But one of the best-kept secrets of the war was a Japanese air offensive on the U.S. mainland using fire balloon bombs, some of which actually reached Utah. Starting in November 1944, Japan launched 9,000 hydrogen balloons laden with bombs that drifted in the high-altitude jet stream more than 6,000 miles across the Pacific Ocean to North America. 
constructed of handmade paper and starch paste, each balloon carried a payload meant to damage cities, farms, and forests. Of the thousand balloons thought to have reached North America, fewer than 300 were actually sighted. Most balloons were found along the Pacific coast and in the Intermountain West, but some traveled as far inland as Michigan. Five balloons are known to have landed in Utah, including two reported in Box Elder County and one each in Morgan, Duchesne, and Iron Counties. Luckily, these did not explode in populated areas, but Box Elder County Sheriff Warren Hyde did acquire a few bruises in his attempt to wrestle one balloon to the ground. The lawman got a free ride when he clung to the balloon's ropes as it drifted and bounced him along for half a mile. The U.S. government prohibited the media from reporting balloon sightings in order to stem public panic and deny Japan information about the impact of their attack. The War Department feared the balloons might carry deadly diseases or even soldiers. It wasn't until six people in Oregon were killed by one of the bombs that the government finally confirmed the existence of the fire balloons and warned people to steer clear of them. Other than the Oregon deaths, damage from the fire balloons was minor. Discouraged by the apparent failure of the effort, Japan halted its balloon attacks in April 1945, four months before the end of the war. Sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Support for Science Questions is provided by Apogee Instruments of Cache Valley, creating innovative sensors for measuring climate change, sustainable food production, and renewable energy. More information is at apogeeinstruments.com. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1, 89.5 Logan. KUSK HD1, 88.5 Vernal. KUSL HD1, 89.3 Richfield. KUST HD1, 88.7 Moab. And KUSU FM HD1, 91.5 Logan. Logan.